We're going to be studying the book of Ephesians again this morning, and so if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, but I'd also like to say that today we're going to be um, doing some flipping around in our Bibles, and so if you would like to prepare for that, um, we're going to be in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians as well, uh, we're just reading some verses out of each one, and I thought rather than put all of these on the board, it would just be so much easier for us to flip back and forth from Romans to Galatians, and so you can t- you got a bulletin, you've got an insert there, you've got a Bible, maybe you have a ribbon, um, so um, I'm assuming that, and I know, that you came here to learn and read and understand the Bible. So we're going to do that today. We're going to jump in and we're going to do that. Uh, We're going to look at our scriptures today. Let's pray and ask God to give us grace and to help us. Father in heaven, as we open our Bibles now, we recognize that this is your word. We have experienced its power. It's transformed our lives. Um, You have given us this great and precious gift of your word. And your word tells us of even a great gift that you've given us in Jesus and salvation. And we pray that you'll help us this morning. Help us as we look at the words. Help us as we think about these things. Help us as we actually study. Help us as we love you with our mind. Help us as we seek to be changed by your word. And help us as we work to discover you and the great things that you have done for us. Give us grace, we pray. Give us grace. Meet with us now, we ask. You've promised that if we draw near to you, that you will draw near to us. We're seeking to draw near to you now. We're seeking your help. So help us and be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Have you ever tried to change somebody's mind to get their mind to change about something. It's hard. It's hard to get people to change their mind. You've got to to talk a lot. You've got to reason with them. You've got to answer questions. You've got to be patient. Um, And it's a hard process for somebody to change their mind about something. Excuse me, because I'm about to fall. It's hard. Have you ever tried to change your own mind? Have you ever realized, wait a minute, what did you just tell me? No, 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 no. What? And then they give you more facts and you wrestle with it and you say, well, that's not the way I've seen this. No, wait a minute. And you may have, when you've come to change your mind, you may have had to wrestle for a long period of time, rolling this thing over. You may have even been resistant to change your mind and, uh, and, and such. And the process is hard. And I have to confess I had a pity party for myself a little bit this week. Um, because I thought studying the book of Ephesians, seeing the power of this book and how, how it actually addresses so many things that we need to almost change our mind to grasp, I thought, oh, I just was feeling sorry for myself. I was like, oh, Lord, you know, how, how the whole week long, our people are out there and the world's trying to tell them one thing and you in this text is telling them something that's almost 180 degrees different. How in the world can I go against that? And of course, God doesn't have, um, God doesn't let me be in a pity party for very long. So he reminded me as I was meditating on this, number one, for goodness sakes, Todd, Paul was trying to get Jews and Gentiles to come together. Certainly you can handle this. 
also, this is my word, and you, they have my spirit, and so get out there and, and do it. But we need to change our minds uh, uh, in terms of the way the world thinks. We need to have our mind changed. We need to have our mind transformed. And actually, I don't know if you realize this, but changing our minds and changing our outlook, changing our view on things is actually a, a, a big part of sanctification. It's, it's a big part of what God is doing in our lives. Uh, Romans 12, chapter 2 says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now look at that process. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If your Bible is open to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, which is where we're going to be studying, if you, you may only have to look across the page to Ephesians, chapter 4, and look at verse 23. In verse 22, Paul tells us to put off the old humanity... We're going to get into that. And in, verse 20, and in verse 24, he's going to tell us to put on the new humanity, the new man. But in verse 23, he says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And so today what we're going to try to do is, is be renewed in the spirit of our mind, to have our minds transformed by the word of God, and primarily in two areas. In our understanding of what actually happened on the cross, I hope that you're going to see that there was a whole lot more depth to what was going on there and our relationship to that. So I think we're going to try to rethink that and, and have our minds transformed. And the second one is, is how we look at ourselves and how we understand our own identity. And I, I'm just going to summarize it as sort of a preview for where we're going. We need to have less of me and more of us. And we're going to look at that in the scriptures, okay? Now, so we're going to look at this text, and here's the text before us. Turn with me to Ephesians 2, verse 11, and I'll read the text that we're going to look at today. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also having been built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, it, when you study a passage like this, it's actually kind of good to be aware of the main words that are being used that... that 
sort of give you the idea of where Paul's going. And there's two main ideas that I just want to highlight before we jump in, in in full depth to it. And that the first one is the idea of creating, God creating, God creating. Look at chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, for new work. So here's this idea of God creating us in Christ Jesus. Creation is very much a part of this, the new creation. In fact, if you then drop down and you look at verse 14, it says, For he is our peace who has made, there that is that idea of creation, made both one. And then if you look at verse 15, it says this at the end, so as to create in himself one new man. So God is creating something. He's doing something. He's creating one new humanity. The other theme that I want you to be aware of as we're looking through this passage is the idea of peace. Peace. Shalom is the Hebrew word, which means not just cessation. I won't shoot you, you won't shoot me, that's peace. No, no, no. It's reconciliation. It's a reestablishing of a relationship. It's goodwill. It's affection with one another. It's a closeness and nearness. And peace is what is, uh, is one of the main themes here. Uh, people being brought near. Look at verse 13. Who have far off have been brought near. That's that idea of peace, of shalom. Then verse 14, this idea that he has made both one. And it says, he is our peace. So there's the idea of peace. Look at verse 15. It says this. Um, it says at the end. They're thus making peace. Look at verse 16, that he might reconcile. Look at verse 17, he preached peace. Look at verse 18, that we both will have access by one spirit to the Father. By the way, look at verse 18. It is one of the most precious verses in the whole Bible. And notice what you see in verse 18. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Notice the Trinity is in that passage, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and notice we are in that passage. It's an absolutely beautiful passage, and that's one of the places we're going to end up. So let's follow Paul's argument through and see what he is saying here, and in hopes that the Holy Spirit will renew our minds and will think in the same way that the Bible wants us to think, the way Paul is thinking here, the way the Holy Spirit is revealing. So, of course, first of all, we've looked at this in the past, verses 11, 12, and 13. Paul is talking to the Gentiles, and he's telling the Gentiles, remember, remember what you were. It's actually a command. Remember what you were. You were, you were, you were the uncircumcision, and, and you were called that by those that are called the circumcision. You were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. God was doing something in the world. He was doing it through the nation of Israel. He was doing it through their prophets and through their temple and through their sacrifices and through their, 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 their scriptures. He, God was at work. God was giving them light. God was giving them covenants. God was giving them promises, and you were on the outskirts. You had none of that. You were not a part of that at all. That's what you once were. And then verse 13, he says this, but, but notice, but now, and notice what he says next, but now in Christ Jesus. Now, there is that idea that we've been looking at in the book of, of Ephesians, this idea of union with Christ. Remember, he began with this. In chapter 1 and verse 3, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4, in him we have been chosen before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, in him we have, in the beloved, we have been, we have been adopted. 
in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. This idea that he is the head, we are the body, and we are in union with him. So notice what he's saying here. But now, in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who were once far off have been brought near. But notice the focus. The focus is on the bloody cross. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And here, the idea here is that the bloody cross... The, the judgment, the wrath, the, the, the punishment, the, the, this price that was paid on the cross, and, and Christ hanging there, that did something. Now, see, a lot of times we look at that and you say, yeah, I know exactly what that did. That, got, that was the forgiveness of my sins. That's it. And that's true. That is absolutely true. But Paul is going to supplement that and add to that so that we see something even more happening when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And here it is. The Gentiles are being brought in. In fact, even more than that is happening. Because notice what he then goes on to say in verse 14. He says, for he himself is our peace. Peace was being established and restored because of the bloody cross, because of him on the cross. Now notice how he goes on to say that, verse 14 who has made both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh, on his broken, blood, bleeding body, dying on the cross, Jesus abolished. Now, the word there, abolished, probably has a better, it, the, the word actually means render something inoperative, render it unnecessary, render it not working right, render so that it, it's not working anymore, render it, 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 it empty in that sense. That's what the word means, render inoperative. He has rendered inoperative in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. He has gotten rid of the law. He has gotten rid of the law in such a way that it was a, 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 a hedge, a partition, that's what he means by that. Notice at the end of verse 14, the middle wall of separation. That, that, that literally means the middle wall that, that acted as a hedge, as a fence that kept people separate. Christ came, and that was the law. Christ came and demolished it. He came and rendered it inoperative. He came and made it a, a, a past event, as it were. And therefore, he has reconciled Jews and Gentiles. Once you were non, uncircumcised, they were circumcised. And that wall has been broken down. And Christ did that on the cross. He abolished it. Now, he did that all on the cross. Now, what, in what sense? In what sense did Jesus render the law inoperative on the cross? In what sense is that true? Okay. Well, this is where we're going to do some, a little bit of study. First of all, what was the purpose of the law? Well, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. What was the purpose of God coming on Mount Sinai, giving them the law, setting up a priesthood, setting up a, a sacrificial system, setting up, giving them all of these commandments, setting up dietary laws, setting up a certain uh, tribe for priests, setting up uh, all these uh, new moon celebrations and, and, and Sabbath days and 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 Paschal uh, lambs, and uh, why? What, what was the purpose of all of that? Even, even dietary laws, you can eat this, but you can't eat this. You can't eat lobster, by the way. You couldn't eat lo I love lobster. 
I'm so glad the law has been abolished, by the way, because I love lobster. You couldn't eat lobster. You couldn't eat, you couldn't eat, you couldn't even want, uh, bind certain, certain fabrics together. Why? Why was that? Because those fabrics were part of the pagan worship of the cultures around them that were fertility fabrics. You couldn't do. There was a lot of stuff that God said, you can't do. I'm keeping you separate. Why? Why did God do that? Well, it's explained to us in Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul called the law a tutor, a guardian. Uh, We use the phrase a wraparound. That, uh, it, was a, it was a person who took a young person to school and back and made sure they did their assignments. That's what it was back in Paul's culture. But then look at what happened, he said, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under the guardians and the stewards, the wraparounds, until the time appointed by the father. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. The law of God was there, part of its purpose was to keep Israel separate, to keep Israel holy until the coming of Messiah. And when the coming of Messiah would come, that wraparound, as it were, is no longer needed. We come into adulthood, we're given the Holy Spirit, the Spirit then leads us into righteousness and such like that. And so the tutor is no longer needed. And therefore, the law's authority over us as, as, as in that sense, is over. The law of Moses' authority is over. The covenant with Moses is done. It's been fulfilled in Christ. It's over. Those dietary laws, all of those restrictions, all of that way of doing worship, all of that is over. In fact, the Bible is so emphatic, we died to that. We died to that. That's actually the terminology that's used. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We died to that. And Paul describes this in Romans chapter 7 when he says this, verse 1. Romans chapter 7 and verse 1. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak of those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? Then he gives an illustration. Okay, so the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. But once that man dies, the law no longer has dominion over him. And he uses an illustration of a woman with a husband. Look at verse 2. For a woman who has a husband is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another. Very simple illustration. As long as her husband is alive, she is bound by the law of marriage to him. Her husband, if she goes and, and, and has another man, she's an adulteress. And, but once her husband dies, there's, there's, she's completely free from that. She can legitimately marry because there's been a death. And that death has, has delivered from the law. Now notice how he applies that, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. We died. We died with Jesus. We died with Jesus to the law that you may be married to another 
to him who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. We died to the law with Christ who also came under the law and, and, and suffered under the law and died under the law and therefore then his relationship with the law ended. Think about a person who, owns, who, who, who lives uh, today and they live today and they have income taxes that are due property taxes that are due. They have certain legal responsibilities that are due that they need to fulfill. Let's focus on taxes. You've got to pay your taxes. You've got to pay your income tax. You've got to pay your property tax. You've got to pay those taxes. When you die, when you die, the IRS has nothing more to do with you. Nothing more. Property tax is done. Well, he's dead. He's dead. You died to that. And this is what he's saying. When Christ died, he died to the law. We died to the law. We died to the law in Christ, and therefore the law has no longer has authority over us. Not only that, look at Romans chapter 10 and verses 3 and 4. Jesus fulfilled the law. He was the completion of the law. He was the whole purpose of the law. And when he came, he then fulfilled the law. And notice what it says. He says in verse 3, he says, For they, here he's talking about the Jews, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. He's the purpose of the law. He's the abolition of the law in that sense for, his, for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so this idea of Christ separating us and severing us and, and rendering the law inoperative, breaking down the middle wall, breaking it down, fulfilling it. Christ is the sub, he is the lamb of God. He is the priest. He is the building a temple, a spiritual temple. All of these things, all of these things he has done away with because he's fulfilled them. He's the completion of them. And he died to it. And then, of course, Galatians, turn with me now to Galatians chapter 3. And then, of course... Christ also took away the curse of the law. He died for all of our sins and what we have done. He died and fulfilled the law in that sense for us by taking away its curse. We were under the curse of the law. But in Galatians 3.13, Paul says this, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so the law, as it were, is, is, is done. The curse of the law is over, and that we might receive the Holy Spirit by faith. Okay. Now, I'm going to come back to Galatians 3 within minutes here. But if you go back to Ephesians 2... Notice how Paul then argues. Notice how, he, how Christ took these things away and he has created in himself this new man. So let's go back now and let's look at what Paul is saying here. Again, look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Christ is our peace. He, he made this all happen. Who has made, there's creation, both one. He's made, out of two, he's made one new man. And has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances. Now notice the next phrase. So to create, create, there's this idea of creation, in himself, there's union with Christ, in him, in Christ, one new man, anthropos, anthropos, not on air. On air, by the way, is male, maleness. Anthropos is mankind. 
One new mankind. We have anthropology, the study of man, humans, the study of human civilization. Anthropos, he has created one new humanity out of the two making peace. Christ created in himself one new humanity from the two, Jew and Gentile, which, is, which encompasses the entire world, the Jewish world and then everybody else. He has made one new man making peace. He has done this in himself. He has made this in himself. And in union with him, he has brought us all together. And therefore, all of the distinctions of Jew, Gentile, all of those distinctions break down because we have been put in union with Christ. Now, look, notice how he summarizes that in Galatians 3. Told you we'd be back here soon. Galatians 3. Notice what he says in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, the true Israel, and heirs according to the promise. Now look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. The categories of Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile have, been, have no meaning and no divisive uh, uh, reality anymore. You're one in Christ. Slave or free doesn't mean anything. You're one in Christ. Your identity is that you are one in Christ. He's breaking down everything in society that divides us, breaking it all down, male nor female. He goes on to talk about in other passages, educated and uneducated, uh, uh, sophisticated Greeks and barbarians. He even includes the Scythians, who are like the, the hell's angels of the, of the generation. He talks about these people, and he says, all of that has been broken down, and your identity is that you have all been brought to be one glorious humanity in Christ Jesus, one in him, in union with him. You are now this one new humanity, and that's your identity. That's who you are. That's what's important. And it's this idea. It's completely based on this union with Christ. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, notice it again before we move on. He says in verse 15, and to create in himself, in Christ, one new man from the two, thus making peace. He's united us with Christ. But then notice verse 16. He's taken this one new man and reconciled this one new man to God. That's why he is our peace. We have peace with one another, but now we have peace with God. Look at verse 16. And, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body. Now, here commentators go back and forth. Okay, wait a minute. What's that in one body? Is that in Christ's body hanging on the cross? Or is that in this one humanity, this one humanity? He, he's reconciled this one humanity to the Father. And of course, the answer is yes. It's both. Because when Christ is hanging on the cross, what else is happening? Who's also there? You say, well, wait a minute, Todd. What kind of crazy question is that? Well, Oh, well, let me try to answer that for you, Todd, because it's a crazy question, but we don't want to embarrass you in front of all these people. You know, there were Roman soldiers there. There were onlookers. There. No, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about. 
What Paul's talking about is that we were in Christ. We were in Christ when he was on the cross. We were in a very special, unique way called union with Christ. We were there. You have, do you not know that you were crucified with Christ, Paul says? You were buried with Christ. You were raised. How does that all work? Well, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. When you were born, were you born and to live forever? Was your body? No. You were born, and you were born in such a way and in such a condition that you were eventually going to die. Not only that, as you and I lived, we began to grow old. We were born of a humanity that is going to die. We're all going to die. We were born of a humanity that is prone to getting old. We were born in a humanity that is prone to getting disease, sickness. We are born in a humanity that is prone to sin. We have a sinful nature, and we tend to do stuff, stuff we don't even want to do, stuff we, 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 we hurt people around us, and we don't, but we're tending to enter. We are born to a race of people who are under the power of sin, under the power of death. Uh, we are, we're under the power of disease. We're under the power of sickness. Why? Why is that true about all of us? It's true about all of us because we are in Adam. We are in union with Adam, and this is the way the Bible speaks. In Adam, all die, but in Christ, all shall be made alive. You see, we are in Adam. We are, we are under the power of sin, under the power of death, under the proneness to sin, under the proneness to disease, have these bodies that are going to fall apart and eventually be buried in the ground and eventually be dust. We are all that because of our relationship with Adam. And in a very real sense, in the Bible, you say, well, wait a minute. Adam was a bad guy. Why do I have to suffer like this? Get Adam. Don't get me, God. Go after Adam. Don't go after me. No, no, no. You, we, you were in Adam. Adam was the head. You were the body. That's what it means to be in Adam. You were in Adam. Adam rebelled, and in, that, in a very real sense, you rebelled in Adam. In a very real sense, you and I were in the Garden of Eden and we rebelled against God and we ate the fruit of the tree and we are suffering the consequences because we're all one in Adam. We're all one. Somebody doesn't come out of the womb apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody doesn't come out of the womb sinless, come out of the womb ready to live eternally, eternal life, come out of the room, uh, womb obeying God, come out of the womb with no proneness to sickness. No, even Jesus was born out, out of Mary. He was born into the race of Adam. He had a body that could be prone to sickness and to death because he, he, he identified with us. He came into this human race to win it out of there, but he came as the second Adam. And this is where we have to get our mindset to understand and think biblically. In Christ, in Adam all die. In Christ all shall be made alive. When the Bible speaks that way, it's using a perfect parallel. You can either be in Adam and be in one in union with Adam or be in union with Christ. And then from in being in union with Christ, all of the blessings flow from Christ. And that union is so great that it's considered that when Jesus Christ was arrested, you were arrested. When Jesus Christ was crucified, you were crucified. And that's how the Bible speaks. We were crucified with Christ. When Jesus Christ died, you died with him. And when Jesus Christ was buried, you were buried in that tomb with him. And when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you were raised with him. And when Jesus Christ was ascended to heaven, you are ascended to heaven with him. And that's exactly how Paul speaks. We just studied it. Look at chapter 2 and verse 4. 
But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. As far as Paul's concerned, we've been raised with Christ. We have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are there with Christ even now because why? He is the head. We are the body. That's what it means. And so what Paul is trying to get at here, and this is where he wants us, our minds to be transformed. We are a new humanity. We are a new people. We have a new head, which is Christ. The old humanity, which was united to Adam, we have been redeemed out of, and we have been made a part of the new humanity. And we have, therefore, been reconciled. When Jesus died upon the cross, we were there with him in union. And when the wrath was poured out, the wrath was poured out upon our sins as well. And God judged him, and we were judged as it were in him. We aren't going to come after under our wrath now because our head, Adam, our Adam, died on our behalf. And he reconciled us to God. And he completely removed the enmity. He completely removed the wrath. And that's why Paul says this. He said, verse 16, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. And then he went out and he preached this gospel. He preached and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. He preached this gospel to us that we would believe, that we would embrace, that we would come to, 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 to accept what he has offered. And then we come down to verse 18. For through him, See, the focus has been on Christ all the way. He's our peace. He created us. He made us. He reconciled us through the cross. For through him, through Christ, we both, here he's trying to bring us back to understand that we both, Jew and Gentile, we're one. We have access by one spirit. We all have the same Holy Spirit. He says we have access to God, to the Father. Now, Let's just look one more thing here in this text before we apply it to ourselves, and that's that word access. That word access, that's a beautiful word. The word access is actually a very important word. We use this word all the time in our culture now. We especially use it when you talk about the, the, the people of power. Who has access to these people of power? Who can pick up the phone and call them? Who can walk into their office uninvited? Who can just come in and say, knock on the door and, 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 and expect to be in? That's what access is. A, a lot of times you'll hear in the news, access to the president. Who has access to the president? Who has access to the prime minister? Who has access? And what this passage, and this, this word is a very powerful word. It's used three times in the New Testament, okay? It's used in, in Romans 5, 1 and 2, where it says this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that idea of peace. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Through Jesus Christ, we have access to God's and to his grace. The other two times it is used in the Bible is this verse that we have before us and the verse actually in the very next chapter. Chapter 3 and verse 12, it says this, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. We have access to the throne of grace. We have access to the inner throne of heaven. We have access to God our Father. We have access through him. 
because of what Christ has done. So go back to verse chapter 2, verse 18. For through him, through Christ, through the cross, through the peace, through the blood, through what he's done, through the unity, through union with him, we have, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. We can walk into our Abba Father's home. We can walk into his office. We can walk into his presence. We can come straight to him. I, was, I had this illustrated in my own life this week. I, some of you know I've taken up the hobby of ham radio. And so in my office, I have my desk, and I have a chair here that is in front of the window, and that's where I pray. And then I, I have my ham radio over here. And I was sitting there praying once, and I was thinking, I've got this ham radio over here. I had to get two licenses from the FCC in order to use it. I had to spend money on this radio. I had to hang an antenna way up in a tree. And that gives, has given me access around the world. I've been able to talk to people in lots of different countries with that. It's been super fun and super cool. But I was sitting there praying. I was thinking, and yet, I can sit here in this rocking chair and talk to God Almighty. Just I have absolute access, just Father. Father, and I immediately have his attention, and I don't have to say, can you hear me, can you hear me, and I just got him. He's there, and I can talk to him. We have that kind of access, and here, what Paul is trying to tell us is this. We have that access. We, as, as this new humanity, and that's why, for instance, in verse, 17, in verse 18, it says this, we, for through whom we both have this access. Now look at verse 19. It says, therefore you, and that's the plural you, you all, yuns, that's therefore you all are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. And I wish that would have been translated family of God, the, his, his, his inner family, his people. You, plural, are one in Christ Jesus, Paul is saying. Jew and Gentile, you're one now. The law has been taken away, you're one now. Slave and free, men and women, educated and uneducated, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, and Native American, you are one. You are one family, one nation, one temple, one people, one humanity, one community, one people of God. That's the emphasis that, that, that is here. So let's apply this to ourselves. We need to have renewed minds. And here's the renewing mind challenge. The renewing mind challenge is to think of ourselves biblically the way the Bible has us to think about ourselves. Think about it, dear friends. Think about it. You were united. We as a group were united to Christ. Ephesians 1, 4, before the foundation of the world. We were united to Christ. We, us, we, the God's people, were united to Christ. We were one with Christ when he was on the cross. We were one with Christ when he was bursting out of the tomb. We are one with Christ now as he's, as he's in heaven and united with him. We, we, we are one. We are one with him. We are one. Just like, and, and so I want you to think about this for a second. Think about... You were on the cross with Christ. I mean, don't, don't think, yeah, I'm hanging out. No. In him, he's the head, you're the body. You were on the cross with him. So think about this. What that, the implications of that are. Think of, think of your sin. Now, you can't think of every sin that you've ever committed. 
you and I can't even come close to thinking about that. But start thinking about the aggregate of them. How many times you said something you shouldn't have said? You said something that hurt people. I said something that hurt people. How many times did we think things that were just evil? How many times did we desire things that were just wrong? How many times did we get angry with people with sinful anger and hurt them? How many times have we been vengeance and got people back and tried to get people back or even just dreamed about getting people back? How unforgiving we've been. How uncompassionate we've been. How many times have we lied? How many times have we, have we not loved our neighbors ourselves? We've ignored our neighbor. We neglected our neighbor. We could care less about our neighbor. We were irritated with our neighbor. We flipped a bird at our neighbor, for goodness sakes. How many times have we not loved God with all of our heart? How many times have we fallen short? How many times? And now I want you to think that all of those sins, every single one of them, your sins, every one of your sins, those that have your name on it, were united with Christ upon the cross. And there he willingly died, and his blood cleansed and washed you of all. God poured out his wrath upon those sins. When those nails were being burst through his, his, his hands and his feet, those nails were for you and for your sins too. As he hung there gasping for breath, that was for you. As he hung there for hours in that sun dying, that was your sins being punished. As he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There, your, the union was so great, your sins were on there, and your sins were punished. Your sins were punished. Their sins were, wrath was being poured out upon your sins. Judgment was being made upon your sins. The just judgment of your sins. All of your crimes were being paid for. And when he died, it is finished. He died. Your sins were gone. They were gone. Because you are in union with Christ. He is the head. You are the body. There is a union between head and body that can't be broken. There is a union there. You put a bullet through my brain, my heart stops beating. My lungs start breathing. Why? Because there's a union. And this is the union that we have with Christ. There is a union between husband and wife, a union. And that union is in, in, in love. That union is, in, is legal. That union. And if the husband becomes a billionaire, the wife becomes a billionaire. She's in union with him. There's a union between a vine and a branch. The life from the vine, the nutrients from the vine, the nutrition from the vine, all that comes out of the root system from the vine flows to the branches and bears fruit in the branches. There's a union between vine and branches. And that's the union that we have with Christ. And we're just about to symbolize it right now. We are just about to take a piece of bread in which Jesus said, this is my body. This represents my body. And here's what I want you to do. To demonstrate your union with me, I want you to take this, and I want you to take it into yourself. Because you are one with me. I am one with you. And as this nutrient becomes a part of your bones and your blood and your muscle, there is a oneness between me and you. I this is my body. Take, eat. This is my blood. This represents my blood. This represents the cross. This represents the wrath that was poured out. This represents the price that was paid. This represents my blood. Now, I am not telling you, Jesus said, to just look at it. 
to admire it, to say, oh, that's wonderful. This is the blood. Isn't that great? Now, let's put it back. No, Jesus says, I want you to drink this. I want you to take this into your body. I want this to be one with you. And that's part of the symbolism of this table that we're just about to read. It symbolizes that. And this is the mindset that we're supposed to have. You died. You've been raised with Christ. You're one with him. You're in union with him right now. And it's so well put. In one of my favorite passages of scripture, please turn with me, Colossians. Just kiss, keep turning. You're in Ephesians, go to Philippians, then go to Colossians, and look at how this is all summarized so beautifully in four little verses. Colossians 3. If then you were raised with Christ, there's union, isn't it? Look at its past tense. We have been raised up with Christ. Now, notice how our transformed minds is to transform the way we look at all of life. Seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. See, for, for this apostle, this stuff is real. This is how we're supposed to be thinking. Notice verse 2. Here's sanctification of the mind. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Why? Verse 3. For you died. Well, I don't know. I feel pretty alive right now. No, you died. You died on the cross with Christ. You died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. What is that but union with Christ? I'm up in heaven right now with Christ in God because the head is there. The body is going to be there. And then he says this, and when Christ who is our life appears, you will also appear with him in glory. And so that's part of the renewing of our mind. The second part of the renewing of our mind that we need to take place in our mind if we want to think biblically and have a renewed mind is this. We need to radically modify the hyper-individuality that is in our culture, and we need to see ourselves as a body. Does anybody know who the 12th man is? Have you ever heard the concept of the 12th man? Raise your hand if you have ever heard the concept of the 12th man. I was wondering. Okay, I knew you did. I knew you would have. And I knew the 12th man is a phrase that's used of, of fans of a football team. The football team has 11 guys, and then if they're in the home, home field and there's tens of, uh, tens of thousands of fans that are wearing your color and are rooting for you, and when you're about to try to push in for that final three yards and make a touchdown in order to win this game, they are cheering you on and it energizes you. That's called the 12th man. It's not called the 12th men. It's not called the 50,000 men. It's called the 12th man. They come as one. We need to start thinking of ourselves less and less as an individual, which is what our culture does, and we need to start thinking of ourselves as the body of Christ, as the people of God, as the 12th man, as a corporate people, as one. We need to get rid of me, more and more get rid of me, and more and more of us. You see, this is the problem that we have today with people with the church. They see the church as what can I get out of it. They come to the church with totally self-centered, hyper-individualist me-ism. What can I get out of it? What will be my blessing? I'm going to come in and I'm going to sit. And if the preaching's entertaining and I'm going to get something good about it and the music is really kicking, I am going to be happy, then that's my blessing. I get my blessing from the church and I leave. And that's my relationship. And that is so dreadfully unbiblical. That's dreadfully unbiblical. 
It's, we treat the church like a mall. I go in and I like, and if, they, if they have a, oh, if they don't have what I need, then I go to another, another mall where I can get something that I need. And there's no connection to people. There's no commitment to the body of Christ. There's no commitment to that 12th man, to that one corporate entity, to that new humanity. But you see, the church isn't like that. That's a total misunderstanding what church is. Church is a body. And a body is not a collection of parts only. A bo- you can have a bag of bones, and you can have a bag of human muscle, and you can have a bag with a human liver in it, and you can, ha- you can actually lay out a sheet and put a human liver on there and a human ha- lungs on there and a human heart on there and human bones on there and, and then wrap that sheet up, that blanket up, and then throw it over your shoulder. You don't have a person back there. You've got a grotesque mixture of individual parts, and that's how so many churches function today because people don't commit themselves to the body. They don't realize that a body is when the liver is connected to the blood system and to the nervous system and the kidneys and the liver is serving them and the body is serving the liver and the lungs are serving the body and the body is serving the lungs and the eyes are serving the body and the body is serving the eyes and the hands are serving the body and the body is serving the hands and we're one and we're connected and we're organic and that's when people start saying, what is my role here? What is my ministry here? How can I help people here? How can I serve here? These are my people. This is what I am. This is who I am. And by the way, see that bread? See that cup? Listen to how that's described by the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 10, 17, it says this. For we, though many, are one bread and one body. You could put there, there one loaf and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Taking that bread in the next few minutes that you're about to do also symbolizes that that bread came from one loaf that Evie made and cut up into pieces for us. That one loaf, we all are part of that one loaf. And we are actually symbolizing by us gathering together and eating this meal, we are symbolizing that we are the body of Christ. Let me finally say one more thing. We live in a day and an age where Everybody is searching, wrestling, trying to figure out who I am. See, we, we, we got God out of the picture. We're seculars now. We're secularists, so we're alone in the universe. We have no meaning. We have no purpose, so we need to make a purpose. We need to come up with an identity, and that's, that's what people are doing. That's the, and and you, know what is, you know what is going on today? And I hope you feel this. It's so sad. It's so tragic. It's so shallow what people are doing today to try to find their identity. I'm gay, somebody will say. Well, I'm straight. Well, I'm trans. Well, I'm bi. And I'm proud of that. But wait a minute. You're your identity is your sexual orientation? Well, I'm heterosexual. I got 11 kids. You all know that anyway. <laughs> and guess what? No big deal. That ain't who I am. Oh, I'm, I'm this, I'm that. We, we, we pick race. We pick political party. I'm Democrat. I'm Republican. I'm Independent. I'm Green Party. Okay, well, tell me something interesting about you, because politics is really stupid and boring, quite frankly. You know what I'm saying? 
Well, I have lots of money. So, you have a pile of money. That doesn't tell me anything about you, but you have a pile of money. And by the way, when you die, somebody else is going to divvy that money up real fast. I'm an influencer. Yeah, you might be for now, but in 15 minutes, you probably won't be. I'm good looking. Well, let's talk about that in five years. Definitely in 10 years. You see what people are doing? I'm gay. I'm a certain race. I'm a certain party. I have money. Or I have education. Or I'm an influencer. Or I'm good looking. Do you not see how sad and pathetic that all is? As being the sum total of who you are? How fleeting and shallow that all is. Compare that with this. Listen very carefully and read on the screen. Listen to this. 1 Peter 2, Paul tells the Christian who you are. But you, plural, are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. His own special people. You want purpose in life? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's a great way to spend your life, isn't it? Who once were not a people, but now are, but are now the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dear friends, there's an identity. There's richness, there's beauty, there's who you are. And I hope you can say that about yourself. I hope you can say, I am sitting here today and I am a believer in Christ Jesus. I am a follower of Christ Jesus. I have been saved. I am a child of the living God. I am in this royal priesthood. I am in this holy nation. I am this part of this glorious people, the chosen people of God. Praise God. I once didn't have mercy, I did. And if you're sitting here saying, I can't say that about myself, God, will, God, God invites you to come and join it. God invites you to come and join it. And the pathetic thing that you thought made you go, I'm cool, I'm hip, I'm good looking, I'm rich, I'm educated, all of that stuff, which means absolutely nothing in the long run, God is going to give you an eternal identity and an eternal people and an eternal love for him, all you have to do is repent of your sins, turn to Christ, say, Christ, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm in, I'm all in, I come to you, I trust in you. Oh, God, save me, Give, have mercy upon me, and God will, God will. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for what you have offered to us and what you give to us. Father, bless and be with us now as we partake of this table and as we're reminded of these things. Father, touch us now, we pray. Come to us now, we ask. And we will thank you and praise you for the identity, for the union with Christ, for the forgiveness and all that you've given us. We pray this in your precious name.